Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome back to Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, friends, I'm Alicia. Thanks for coming back to join us. In honor of the coming week of Halloween this week, we are getting into some witchy women. Indeed. Taking our theme song this week from Eagles. And one of Stevie Nicks' boyfriend, my mm-hmm. profile this week, Witchy Woman, y'all, 1973 version, the Eagles will give credit to Zelda Fitzgerald, believe it or not. And Interesting. I'm team Zelda forever. You are. Zelda gets a song out of it. We're going to talk a little bit more about Witchy Woman on Patreon this week. That's not what we're here for. We've got some beloved bewitching trashy angel witches this week. I mean, big reveal. I'm doing the story of Stevie next, y'all. Right. Stacy. this week you've got... Elizabeth Montgomery. Gosh, so good. The actress who played Samantha Stevens on TV's Beloved Bewitched. Stevie and Lizzie, man. It's going to be a good week. Witchy women. Witchy women. Before we get started on the episode, let's go ahead and talk about what happened on Patreon this week. We did a thing on Druid astrology, tree astrology, if you will. We followed up with some surprising... Heirs and heiresses. Uh, we talked about Halloween Tudor times. Oh, right. And we continued our Adams Family Values story. With Fester and Wednesday. Jackie Coogan, who was married to Betty Grable and had, whoa, all kinds of life stuff. As yeah. well as Lisa Loring, who played Wednesday Adams. Yep. And we did some Enneagram, Weighing of the Soul. And <laughs> it's not Weighing <laughs> of the Soul. We did some Enneagram Stuff on Patreon this week as well for Trastrology because happy birthday to all of our Scorpio friends. We're moving into this season this past week. We should jump into the magic mirror real quick and say some thank yous. Oh, let's pull the magic mirror out. Sounds good. Da-da-da-da-da. All right. Thank you to Winnie M, Corey C, Danielle W, Antonia K, Cheddar Cat, Emma B, and Galatea. Thank you so much for joining Patreon. We have some new trash candy connoisseurs this week as well, who will be joining us for our salon, our live from the living room session. That's one of our benefits mm-hmm. for those folks. Thanks, Michelle E., Carolyn K., and Kendra H. We can't wait to see you. Yeah, this wait weekend. to see you. All right, I think that is our business. Are you ready to tell some witchy women stories? You got the moon in your eye. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> let's go, go, go. Alicia, I'm so excited. You have someone who technically is a Trashy Divorces alum, because technically we f- she was in a story that we did before. That's exactly right. Today, legend, goddess. She is. Trashy angel. Uh-huh. Stevie Nicks. Woo! Is my focus today. What a yep. story. Stevie does have one divorce that we're going to talk about. It is just far more tragic than Trashy. The real trash lies in her first boyfriend, <laughs> Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> so this is a Trashy Divorces episode. Not a hero of our program. Not a hero of mine. 
But we're going to get into some X-Files, too, and talk about their relationship. Okay. There are a lot of excellent resources that are available on Stevie Nicks in the world. Two specifically, if you really want the deets. Her masterclass on Oprah Winfrey, amazing. There's also an audio book called The Wild Heart of Stevie Nicks by Rob Sheffield that is currently on Audible. And when you mentioned this last night, I was like, oh, I think I have that. And it it is, it's in my library and I haven't downloaded it yet. Excellent resource. <laughs> Both of those references, as well as everything else I've used in my story, always available on TrashyDivorces.com. Okay. Aforementioned, Stacey, mm-hmm. around here at TDHQ, we are fans of Stevie Nicks. We are. We're fans of Fleetwood Mac. We are. You covered the Trashy Divorces breakups and miles of cocaine of the, around the rumors era of Fleetwood Mac. That's right. April 7th of 2019 in season two, episode two. Okay. We still get a lot of emails about how much people love that episode. And for real, seven miles of cocaine. It's one of my favorite ones, honestly. Like there are a few that really jump out and that's one. So if you were in the Trash Panda Club, you just need to say seven miles and we all know what you're talking about. Yep, yep, yep. Today, I'm going to weave a different narrative. Stacy. you've told the rumor story and very well, I might add. Thank you. Today, we're getting into Stevie Nicks and a few key relationships in her life and some lessons learned, too, I suppose. Stevie has been quite on purpose not married since 1983, so 37 years and counting, and I'm thinking that she likes it that way. <laughs> One assumes. Let's get into why. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Lynn Nix, born May 26th, 1948. She's a Gemini baby. Comes out ready to go. She's born in Arizona, but the family moves around a bit. Stevie is going to take ballet as a kid. That is not her love. Her love is singing with her grandpa. He's a country singer. His name is A.J. Nix. And, like, he's a unicorn grandpa. Like, whatever you want to do, kid, you can do. And they are singing together by the time she's four. He will give her truckloads of 45 records and they'll go through and sing everyone together. And grandpa tells her, kid, you're a harmony singer. You are a harmony singer and sing, little songbird, sing. (laughs) And grandpa is going to take her to play in his shows, too. So she's standing up singing in, you know, gin joints at... Four or whatever. She's writing songs by the time she's 11 or 12. Wow. And now, this is early 60s, so here's a fun little tie-in. She is loving the Shirelles. She's loving all of the girl band things, the things that are happening on R&B, the things that are happening in Top 40, meaning every song written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin, Mm -hmm. she is cutting her teeth on. Okay. Right? Nice little tie-in from a few weeks ago. Yep. But Stevie, Gemini kid, Stevie's mom kind of understands her daughter. And Stevie's mom is going to tell her early on, hey, you like being the boss. You need to make sure that you are president of your company or leader of your band because you do not like people telling you what to do. And this is some very wise advice that maybe Stevie should have listened to. There's one November night in 1966. There's a party. And across the room, there's a dreamy guy strumming on the guitar. Big, big hair. Big hair. A lot of beard, I think. 
probably not at that point because okay. they're both on the really edge young. of 17. Oh, are they? Okay. And there's this dude and he's playing California Dreaming. Who is this mystery guitar player? Oh, I can't imagine. Huh. Lindsey Buckingham, old Linz, Libra boy. He's born October 3rd in Palo Alto, California. Lindsey, he's got two brothers. They're all competitive swimmers. Like, seriously competitive swimmers and do very well, but Linz is not into that. Linz is really into music. He's obsessed by it. He loves the Kingston Trio. And Lindsey just like, legit gets obsessed by music and starts playing on this Mickey Mouse guitar until his parents are like, okay, I guess this is a thing you want to do. Here's a real instrument if you want to keep this up. So they upgrade him, you know, to a real acoustic. This is the equivalent of the Snoopy fishing pole that my parents gave me when I was tiny. That's exactly right. You want to be a fisher person? Here, Start with this. Here's your little three foot long Snoopy fishing pole. We have a replica of that pole in our home right we now. We do. Okay. But Lindsay... Has never taken a guitar lesson. He doesn't know how to read music, but he's in love with it all and the guitar and making music happen. He loves his guitar. Maybe he should have dated his guitar instead. All right, let's bring these kids together. November 1966, there's a party and both Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham are there. Both ride on the edge of 17. And I know what Stevie Nicks says about edge of 17, but wowza. This is a teenage romance song, but from a later adult point of view. Like, Stevie Nicks gets it when she writes this song, whatever, 15 years later. It's not important here. Anyway, <laughs> two kids. There's the groovy kid playing California Dreaming in the Corner, and Stevie Nicks is like, my grandpa says I'm a harmony singer. <laughs> so she wanders over. It's my moment. It's my moment, and drops some... Harmonies, sure. Mama Cass, Michelle Phillips harmonies inside of his California Dreamin', and that's that. Life goes on until one of the dudes in Lindsay's band calls Stevie Nicks and is like, uh, do you want to be in her band? And she's like, yeah, I can't think why not. So she joins the band. Grandpa said I'm a harmony singer. Grandpa, I sing <laughs> harmony. I mean, she's also right. Like, she's so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I, I'm, yeah. We joke, but. She joins this band called Fritz, and her parents are cool with it. Like, the band is busy. They are working every weekend. And her parents are like, we're all for this, but you have to stay in school. Because she's still in high school. Like, I, I do recall that. that this like, is high school, college. Right. Like, but, into high school, beginning But yeah, college. this band was like gigging constantly, even before they'd graduated high school. So but that's it. I mean, they're mm -hmm. a working band, but her parents, like, supportive. We'll support what you're doing, kid, but yeah. you still have to get a degree. To have your fallback. To have your fallback plan. This is you, like when you become a parent, I think that a doctor hands you a slip that just has the word fallback on it. <laughs> Here, if your child is creative, here's the word you need. You need a fallback plan. <laughs> All right. So Stevie joins the band. There are no romantic sparks with Stevie and Lindsay. Both do have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. I think you mean respectively. <laughs> Both Stevie and Lindsay. They're both in relationships. Are both in relationships. And they're in a band and they're collaborating. They're having fun. Stevie's taking some classes. So it's like everybody's kind of doing the work and playing. But it's late 1960s in San Francisco. And they're opening for Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. And they're playing at the Fillmore and the Avalon and Winterland. 
it's a marvelous time. And it's all about the music. And they want to make it. And they want to record it too. So here comes Lindsay Buckingham's dad. He works at this coffee company in the city. And he's like, hey, Stevie and Lindsay, I know you really want to uh, have space to work on your tunes. Want some of my sweet, sweet Starbucks dollars? <laughs> I know it's not Starbucks. <laughs> it's not Starbucks. <laughs> but uh, dad's like, hey, I work at this coffee company and I can get you in the office building after nine o'clock at night. And you can work from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. You have a space to do it. It's quiet. Nobody's going to bug you. Work on your music there. So they do. Stevie is going to do crochet as Lindsay's doing his thing. And they lay down some vocals and some music and guitar and sing some more and knit some more and whatever. Romance in the coffee company. After 10 months of working together, they fall in love. Maybe with the project. Maybe with the music. But then it becomes more than all about the music and their, I don't know, I'm going to say love, fall in love here loosely, because I think Lindsay Buckingham really, really is only in love with his guitar. But Stevie's in, and she's hooked. And they're making beautiful music together, and the months of working in the coffee company has changed the dynamic, and it is fueling their passions. What if they're just hyper-caffeinated? They're both air signs. You got Gemini and Libra. So in your astrology, it's floating away, uh, right? Uh, this is okay. Sunny and Cher. Mm -hmm. This is, we did somebody else recently. So they're, they're, in, they're, they're, they're in a shared delusion, if you will. Big things are happening. And they're sharing it together. Mm -hmm. And uh, they make a big announcement to mom and dad and the band. And they're like, hey, guess what? We're now a duo. And we're going to move to LA and make it big. And Stevie's parents are like, okay, kid, uh, but if you're going to do this, we're out financially. You're going to need to support yourself. Go live your dream. But don't come crying to us when you can't make it. Fall back. Good luck. So they move. Stevie gets a job as a waitress. A maid. Uh, every, like, Stevie's working what a does, lot. What does Lindsay do? Well, they're not playing... Uh, She's not playing music in the day. Lindsay is. She's working in the day. Right. Earning money. Right. And Lindsay doesn't have any jobs. Oh, that's because interesting. Because Stevie Nicks will say she's very kind. Uh, Lindsay doesn't have a job because what would he do? I mean, what is Lindsay Buckingham going to do? Is he going to be a waiter? I don't think so. I knew him way too well. You know your man. He's a music man. That's what he does. I, on the other hand, am a girl of all trades. I think she shows a lot of grace in this. Because that is not probably what... I've dated Lindsey Buckingham. That is not what I said. I mean, I haven't dated him, well, but yeah. I've dated that guy. And I'm not as graceful hmm. about what I say, at least inside my heart. Okay. All right, but there's Stevie. She's paying rent and paying for the car. And they're recording in their basement. And they're working on music and... By 1972, they've recorded what will become their debut album, Buckingham Knicks. They get signed to Polydor. The album comes out, gets a lot of critical acclaim. And then Polydor drops them because the album does not sell. Hmm. By 1974, Stevie's done. Stevie is tired of being poor and a waitress and a maid and taking every job she can to support Lindsay's lifestyle of sitting around getting high and playing music all day in his underwear. 
I'm assuming the in his underwear part. These days, I believe video games fill that void for so many, so. I may be projecting about the underwear part. I mean, (laughs) it's 2020. We can surmise. But Stevie, wising up, finally figuring out that she's worth a little more. She's also tired and she's hungry. She's tried to move out a few times, but she can't afford rent on her own. And there have been breakups and get-back-togethers and... Seriously, Lindsay, get your shit together, man. Like, worst boyfriend award. Oh, I forgot to talk about his infidelity. Oh, good. Yeah. So on the Buckingham Knicks album... Well, she's away a lot, Alicia. He probably gets lonely. She's away a lot working 12 uh-huh. jobs. Working so he her job. sit in his underwear, yes. get high, and play guitar. Yes, he's probably very lonely. God. She should focus more on him. Well, Stevie Nicks is a songwriter, right? So there is a definite reference on Buckingham Nicks to him sleeping around in her songs. Like, the relationship is rocky. It is bad. And Stevie Nicks is beyond done. You have taken advantage of me for as long as I am willing to go, bucko. And now Stevie Nicks wants to bail. She's like, you know what? My parents will let me move back home. I can go back to school. I can eat. I can sleep. I can just go study some books and take the pressure off everything that I have tried to keep together for years now. Fear never helps relationships. Just handy, handy life tip. Okay, so Stevie and Lindsay are already on the outs, even before they connect with Fleetwood Mac. This is what the song Landslide is about. Stevie Nicks writes it like, shit, if I dump them, I lose all of it. But I'm hungry. But if I leave, all of that work is gone. And at that time, it's worth staying together to keep the music together. They have this musical connection. I'll sacrifice just a little bit more. And then the phone call comes in from Mick Fleetwood. You've done that episode. Right, because he met the sound engineer who had recorded their album, I think, is that's how it. that all came about. And Lindsay's like, yeah, I'll be in your band, but you got to take my girlfriend too. And like, But it is Stevie Nicks that pushes Lindsay into joining. Stevie Nicks lays it down. She's like, I am done unless you do this. She's barely hanging on. Lays it all on the line. Tired of being a waitress. Let's go. We are here to make music. Sorry, you're going to have to put on pants and leave the house and actually do something with fucking life, man. I'm not a fan. Talented musician. Kind of a lousy boyfriend. <laughs> Lindsay Buckingham is like, okay, so it's on. Stevie and Lindsay, by the summer of 1975, are millionaires. By the end of 1975, They have broken up. Stevie's like, I'm out. I'm out of us. There's nothing that can be done to put us back together again. But you and I are staying in this band and you are going to wear pants and we're going to work together every day to keep this together. Us breaking up does not ruin the thing that we have worked so hard to get here for. I need you to suck it up and put on some pants. But we're done. Over. They wrote some great songs about the breakup, though. Rumors is the mm-hmm. divorce. Oh, and yeah. Until Gaslighter, the yeah. chicks. I don't know if I've heard a better trashy divorces themed out. Like, Rumors yeah. is amazing. And when you get to the end, like, and if it doesn't make you feel better about your trashy breakup, you start the album all over again. <laughs> right? That's so good. Okay, Lindsey Buckingham will blame Fleetwood Mac for the loss of Stevie Nicks. He says they would have been married with kids and had a different life. I don't think Lindsay Buckingham is ever not going to be mad about this. 
Stevie Nicks says destiny didn't take us that way. Both of us would have fought a lot harder at different times in our relationship if we were meant to be together. It works out exactly how it should. He was my great musical love. He was also controlling and jealous and altogether shitty, but music will always connect us. So even though Stevie and Lindsay will continue to fight, work together, be angry at each other, work it all out for the next however many decades, the love affair with Stevie and Lindsay are done. Right after that breakup, Stevie's not wasting any time. Let's date another rock star. Stevie says, don't date rock stars. It never (laughs) ends well. This seems to largely be true, yeah. Never ends well. And really, you got to live the life of that to give out that kind of advice and know that in your trashy, trashy soul. Stevie's going to move on to Don Henley, drummer and vocalist for the Eagles. They're going to run post-breakup with Lindsey Buckingham to 78, 79. Stevie Nicks, again, very kind, will say about Don Henley, he always treated her like a wife. He was so concerned for her care and comfort, which is a really nice thing to say, especially after the advice of don't date rock stars. It's always going to end badly. What happens here? Some information has come to light as kind of time marches on. Both Don Henley and Stevie Nicks have talked about a pregnancy in that relationship and the abortion that Stevie did have because heavily into a substance misuse cycle and addiction. And Stevie will talk about it. I was in no way ready to have a child. There was drugs. There was my health. We were touring. There was the music. Even just last week, she has resurfaced a little bit in the news in an interview where she talked about the importance of access to legal and safe abortions and the reminder that we do not want to return to the back alley format of women's health care. Timely. Stevie and Don, they last for a while. Leather and lace, they're going to do together, right? Will always be a testament to that relationship. But there's some stuff going on in that time, too, in the 70s with old Stevie. There's the Mick Fleetwood thing and the bad romance there while he's divorcing and marrying Jenny Boyd and divorcing again. But before he gets married to Sarah, oh, Stevie's also going to have a little romance with J.D. Souther. She'll date Jerry Brown, also a future governor of California. California, all right. Okay, so 1981 rolls around. She could have been the first lady of California. How amazing would that have been? Yeah, I don't think Stevie's getting married after this. Everyone gets flowing dresses. Everyone. (laughs) It's the new uniform of employees in California. Welcome to California. Here's your flowing dress. (laughs) It has wings. (laughs) Okay. 1981 rolls around, and this is when Stevie Nicks will marry for the first and only time to a guy named Kim Young. Kim is the widowed husband of Stevie's best friend. And for real, the story is tragic. Stevie's best friend, Robin, they've been best friends since they were 14. The year before, 1980, Robin is diagnosed with leukemia. Robin is married to Kim. Two months into her diagnosis, she's in remission, and then she gets pregnant. Robin goes off all treatment. She's like, I'm going to die, but I'm going to leave a child behind. And sure enough, a son is born. And Robin does pass away, and Stevie is grief-stricken. And so is Kim. This 
reminds me a lot of Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher hmm. getting together after the death of Mike Todd. Okay. They're not so much in love with each other as they were in love with the person that they both loved, which, right, brings them together. And Stevie's going to convince Kim, yes, we really need to get married. This is what Robin would have wanted. And upon retrospect, she's like, this was the wrong thing to do. I didn't need to take her son or her husband to do that. Her words, not mine. It was so insane. But grief makes you do weird things. Yes, it does. This marriage only lasts three months. There's this moment three months in where Stevie goes in to check on the baby. And normally when she goes into the baby's room, the crib is always rocking. And Stevie will think, oh, Robin's here. You know, Robin's here Mm -hmm. watching out for us. And three months in, one day Stevie goes into the baby's room and the crib isn't rocking. And Stevie's like, Robin's gone. And she talks about hearing the literal click in her head of, oh, oh. So Stevie heads on up to the kitchen to wait for Kim to come home where she says, I don't love you. You don't love me. You may think you love me, but you don't. Neither one of us was thinking, We've got to end this. This isn't a thing. Right. And that is kind of the story of her three-month marriage. She stayed close to that kid, though, right? I was just about to say. Okay. She will put that kid through college. They're super close now. She's still very much a maternal influence to Robin's child. But she didn't need to be married to Kim to know that. So that is the brief marriage and trashy, tragic divorce of Stevie Yeah, that one's, yeah, I don't know if that's trashy so much as completely understandable that you could confuse grief. your shared grief yeah and, yeah grief makes you do weird things mm-hmm. okay maybe the best thing maybe the very best thing that we got out of that marriage for us happened on their wedding day there's a trashy musical connection to another legend here prince who's also a fellow gemini just like stevie stevie and kim get married and they're driving up to santa barbara After the wedding. Top down. Everybody's got their flowing sleeves. It's my wedding day. (laughs) This is the first day Stevie hears Little Red Corvette. It's the first. It just, it knocks off her face. She's like, whoa. So Stevie is going to write that day what will become the debut song of her second solo album. She writes Stand Back. Okay. That's how much she loved Prince's song. But she goes to record her song, Stand Back, and keeps thinking like, shit, I probably need to tell Prince that I'm doing this song because it sounds a lot like his jam and I would feel a lot better if I could give him co-creator credit and some rights on this. That's how strongly she feels that Prince was instrumental to her making this piece of music. So Stevie Nicks is going to call Prince up. Hey, man, I uh, really like you. And I wrote this song and I just got married and you're blah, blew my face off. And then I wrote that. Okay. 20 minutes later, Prince is walking in her recording studio. Stevie Nicks says he walked over to the synthesizers that were set up and was absolutely brilliant for about 25 minutes and then left. (laughs) He spoiled me. For every band I've ever had, because nobody can exactly recreate, not even with two piano players, what Prince did all by his little self. Hmm. 
So Prince is going to come in in that 25 minutes and do all of the rhythm and the keyboards and basically the entire like music of Stand Back, which when you know this, when you hear Stand Back, you're never going to listen to that song in the same way again. Just saying. Fair. So after the marriage to Kim ends and while working on Belladonna, Stevie is going to date the producer of that album, Jimmy Iovine. After that, she's going to dip back into the Eagles and uh, date Joe Walsh for a little while. Well, she's not done with rock stars. Flying high, wasn't she? She uh, dates Dave Stewart, too. Oh, the Eurythmics. the Eurythmics. in the 80s. Interesting. She'll also date Paul Fishkin, who's the executive who sort of founded Motown Records. Wow. Oh, Rupert Hine as well. 80s is a busy time. So, yeah, okay. So when she says don't date rock stars, she, she knows what she's talking about. She ain't lying. She's telling you. She's telling you. I've dated all of them. It didn't work out. I can categorically state. Don't date rock stars. It you, doesn't end well. You can try. Just keep going through them. <laughs> so definitely Stevie's had some tough times dealing with some substance misuse, dependency, as well as getting clean. And claiming what is her best life. She's always writing. She's always writing new music. Her vitality is unparalleled. She never stops working. And she's very good to herself. Seriously, her self-care is top-notch. Her self-care is so good that she has Yorkshires who wear cashmere too. Because that's how Stevie Nicks rolls. She is living her best life and so are her dogs. Her Her dogs wear cashmere sweaters. Yeah, I'm there for that. Ruby, do we need to upgrade your your shirt selection? Nobody tells Stevie Nicks what to do. <laughs> no, or her dogs. I believe that's true. Oh my gosh. Stevie writes every day. She has been writing every day since she was a teenager. And I love this so much. She's like, at the end of every day, I write down what happens to me at the end of every day. Not like every detail, but it's so easy to forget the daily moments that make up our lives. You can forget anything and ever. You can forget the most magical moments of your life if you don't write them down. And y'all, she's just a prolific writer, dreamy and so clear eyed as well. We continue to find out more and more about Stevie Nicks, and I'm here for that. She was asked, Why haven't you ever written a book? <laughs> I love her answer here. Stevie says, because I wouldn't be able to tell the whole truth. The world is not ready for my memoir. I guarantee you. (laughs) All of the men I hung out with are on their third wives by now. And the wives are all under 30. If I were to write what really happened between 1972 and now, a lot of people would be very angry with me. It'll happen someday, just not for a very long time. I won't write a book until everybody is so old they no longer care. Like... I'm 90. I don't care what you write about me. She will go on to add that she is loyal to a fault. I have a certain loyalty to these people that I love because I do love them and I will always love them. I cannot throw any of them under the bus until I absolutely know that they will not care. (laughs) Wow. Again, full of grace. Stevie Mm -hmm. Nicks. She's a class act. We're going to do a whole Stevie spinning around side episode this week on Patreon. There's so much more to talk about. That is essentially the narrative of Stevie Nicks, not at all trashy divorce. Nary a trash can in sight for that one. But on the other hand, the supremely trashy relationship with Lindsay Buckingham. Ick. Yeah. 
No, you came in last night into my office and were like, hey, I need you to go to YouTube and look up Rhiannon for like a particular show. Have you seen me twirl? Oh, my God. Perhaps you don't know I took ballet lessons. This was like one of their first live shows. Anyway, I didn't get 60 seconds into it before I had to stop and just be like, you know, what surprises me is that Stevie Nicks was not even more famous than, than, than she's been. Well, that's the thing. She Fleetwood just Mac oozes. Mm-hmm. It, she's just eminently watchable. Fleetwood Mac gets together, right, 74. And then they make their Fleetwood Mac album, their debut, and they tour. Mick, let's all stay in the ho- same beach house. And, right, we'll do everything with our coworkers, which you wonder why rumors happen. But anyway. <laughs> the premiere, the first time. The world sees Stevie Nicks. It is on a show called Midnight Special. And it airs on the weekend at midnight. So you got a bunch of drunk people, a bunch of high people who have only heard Fleetwood Mac both on AM and FM. They're kind of a crossover. They're playing both ends of the radio dials. So people have heard Stevie Nicks, but nobody's ever seen Stevie Nicks. And here she comes out. We've got to follow up on this. Rhiannon is just, a, Stevie Nicks is a goddess. She's definitely a witchy woman. And I'm so thankful to share a world with her. That, same here. I'm proud of Stevie for getting out of that toxic first relationship. Like you don't know until you do. And then you decide that you may be worth more than supporting your musician boyfriend and lifting the entire load financially and emotionally. So, Stevie Nicks, sorry, not sorry, halos. All the shiny, shiny halos. I'm giving Lindsey Buckingham unlimited trash cans <laughs> filled with the remnants of crochet that Stevie Nicks has left behind when she dusted him like the gold dust woman that she is. Did she shatter your illusions of love, Lindsay? Get over it. It's been 50 damn years. Put on some pants. Has Fleetwood Mac let him back in the band yet? Nope. <laughs> he's still out. <laughs> Yikes. I don't think he's coming back. Probably not. I don't, I don't think he's did. invited. I think Mick Fleetwood is the boss who genuinely believes it when he tells you this workplace is like a family. <laughs> he does and then, believe it. And then can't figure out why everything goes to hell. <laughs> like, quite the people manager, that Mick Fleetwood. Seven miles of cocaine. Whew. Halos. Trash cans, no pants. That is the story of Stevie Nicks. Let's take a quick break. Yep. Hear from our awesome sponsor. And we're going to come back and do a little... A little more witchy women. I love it. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. 
It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Stacey, you have an utterly bewitching subject this week for Trashy Divorces. I do, indeed. As we wander through the weird witchy season of 2020, kind of the whole year, but sure, it's October. (laughs) It only makes sense to take a gander at the life and loves of one of television's best-known witches, Samantha Stevens, the suburban housewife who married husband Darren Stevens for love and adopted the customs of a mid-century American middle-class wife. Her family, witches and warlocks all, are not amused, and the comedy frequently hinges on their efforts to magic Darren or other mortals and mess things up for their own amusement. Team Endora. That's the mom, played by Agnes (laughs) Moorhead. Samantha was played by actress Elizabeth Montgomery, who had quite the Hollywood pedigree, and luckily for us, three trashy divorces. Let's get into it. So Elizabeth Victoria Montgomery was born to act, kind of. Her father was movie star Robert Montgomery, and her mother was Broadway actress Elizabeth Bryan Allen. They met in 1924 while they appeared on Broadway together. And on April 15th, 1933, Aries, baby Elizabeth, their second daughter, was born. Oh. She would soon be joined by younger brother Robert. Tragically, their first daughter, Martha, had died as an infant. Oh, that's sad. I think she lived 14 months or something. Mm. Very sad. So although her parents were Hollywood royalty, Elizabeth's upbringing was not some kind of loosey-goosey bohemian party scene. Her dad was temperamentally conservative, and as adults, they would butt heads over her unabashed liberalism and Democratic Party activism and his old-school Republican leanings. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Her parents had expectations for how she would look and how she would behave, and these things clashed with the identity that she was forming— And ironically enough, this dynamic helped to shape both her initial acting skills and I think also really informed how she would choose to deploy her talents in her acting career. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, you know, interesting times that she was born into. In 1939, the family headed to England to film, which I think they did in summers anyway. I think that was just what they did in the summer. Robert would go to England and film movies. Right. Okay. Well... Hitler decided it was time... Yeah, 1939, not a great time to be hanging out in uh, Europe. Yeah, Hitler decided this was the time that, you know, it's Third Reich time, yo, and he invades Poland. Yeah, September, one of that year. They stuffed the kids onto a fast 
boat <laughs> back to America. Oh, my. And they stay with their maternal grandmother, um, Becca Allen, for the time being. Becca would become a fixture in the household for several years. Uh, she moved in to help look after the kids and provide some support to her daughter, Elizabeth. It's a little confusing. Both parents, the parents are Robert and Elizabeth, and the children are also Robert and Elizabeth. Younger Robert goes by Skip. Oh, well, naturally. And, his, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure that the Elizabeth we're talking about goes by Lizzie in her real life based on just reading a biography. Okay. Um, I'm struck by how absolutely relevant this whole story is to today. You've got extended family living in mm-hmm. with the family. You have grandmother taking care of, like, yeah, you've got intrigue between parents and kids. This is fascinating. Yeah. So grandma's there for years because dad, he signed up to go fuck up some Nazis. Oh, so well, good on like him. even before America got into the war. All right. So here's fun fact about Robert Montgomery in World War Two. Bobby, can we call him Bobby? Sure. Did not end up in Culver City or wherever making training videos with the rest of the Hollywood heavy hitters. He actually went to London before the U.S. entered the war and he drove ambulances in France until really? mm-hmm, until the Dunkirk evacuation in 1940. Huh. So the U.S. finally joins the war in 1941. He enlists in the Navy and serves aboard the USS Barton, which took part in the Normandy invasion in 1944. You're joking. Not joking. So all that's happening. Oh, my. On the home front, though, like if Lizzie's parents were successful squares, her grandmother was unashamedly fun and broad-minded. Oh, fantastic. I love unicorn grandmas. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. love it. She was a breath of fresh air and a childhood that had the potential to suffocate a creative kid with a loving but somewhat dictatorial father. Still, even with Grandma bringing in some genuine affection and joy, the standards were quite high in the Montgomery home. Grades and behavior were both expected to be excellent, and the family did not skimp on instilling values around hard, honest work. Which is all good stuff. However, so in a biography called Twitch Upon a Star by Herbie J. Pilato, Lizzie explains some of the dynamics that play in the household and that some of the restrictions placed on her as a kid she felt were, and continued to feel throughout her life, were were weird. For instance, she was not allowed to go to the movies. Oh. Her father's a movie star. She's not allowed Isn't to go to the odd? movies. She loved the movies. So this was actually something that she really chafed under. She said it wasn't a situation where they put their foot down and just ordered her to steer clear of theaters. Uh, she says, quote, it was much subtler than that. Her father instead would say something like, oh, now, Elizabeth, you have something a hell of a lot better to do on a Saturday afternoon than sitting in a movie theater. So as an adult, she decided that they took the stance because they worried that once she was exposed to the movies, she was going to jump in with both feet, which obviously is what happened. There was apparently also an incident when she was very little. They took her to see one of her dad's movies, and it's a action something or another. He's in an airplane that is literally falling apart. Oh, and it upset her. It upset her. Mm-hmm. She was she did not react well. So it's probably a little of both. They didn't want to... They really did not want her getting into acting. Like, if that's your first movie, remember when movies were first a thing and they showed a rushing train? Oh, and people flipped out. And people ran out of the... It was yeah. a riot. Mm-hmm. Like, what is happening? Yeah. So... Speeding train coming at you. And every... Yeah. Maybe they, if you're a movie star, do not show the movie that you're... Plane is coming apart to your young child. Yes. When Daddy Robert returned from the war as a lieutenant commander, he was welcomed back as a conquering hero, but he quickly realized that his career was never going to be the same as it had been before. Leading roles were now going to young actors, 
And I feel like this comes up a lot. Like Ronald Reagan came back from the war and ended up getting involved in the union because... George Reeves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, uh, Robert Montgomery also was... He was involved in SAG. And like you told the story of Frank Sinatra and he was rejected by the army because of a perforated eardrum. But that left him here in the States while all the men were away to like become a famous singer and crooner and heartthrob. Because there was no competition for men in his age bracket. Easy. Easy pickings. (laughs) He was it. Literally. So, okay. Robert adapted. Instead of clinging to a failing movie career in Hollywood, he moved his family to New York City. So he wanted to like be available for the theater scene there, of course. But also there was this new medium of television. That was all the rage. Also, he was an ardent anti-communist, and Hollywood may have started to feel a little lefty to him after his years in the service. And like Ronald Reagan, he would go on to cooperate with the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Manhattan suited both father and daughter very well. Robert ends up hosting the Emmy Award-winning Robert Montgomery Presents television series from 1950 to 1957, which would also be where Elizabeth would find her first television role. Slightly problematically, Robert also had an affair with the heiress to the Standard Oil fortune. No. Elizabeth, another Elizabeth, Elizabeth Buffy Grant Harkness, who herself was married at the time. uh, And so this blew up both of their marriages. Robert's divorce was completed on December 5th, 1950, and he married Buffy four days later. Apparently, his daughter never really took to his new wife, and one of Samantha's rivals on Bewitched, she made sure was named Buffy. That's fantastic. Yes. Interesting, all that Harkness money. We did a story not long ago about Rebecca Harkness, who married into the Standard Oil fortune, who Taylor Swift lives in her house now. It all, it, trashy spiderwebs. All right, so let's posit that Elizabeth's complicated and sometimes heartbreaking relationship with her father contributed to several things about adult Lizzie Montgomery. First, she was drawn to older men, possibly searching for the validation that she was never quite able to find in her father. Imago. Second, she was drawn to not great guys, probably in rebellion to his fairly formal. This is a tough combo of things to be drawn to. Older, not great guys, basically. Although it seems like she did actually find happiness with husband number four. We have a ways to go before we're there, though. In 1951, she auditioned for and won a role on her dad's TV show. This was very much against dad's better judgment, who did not want his daughter getting into showbiz, but he relented. Trash father Dominic Dunn, yeah, patron saint of Trash Candy, was the stage manager at the production, and they became great friends, lifelong friends. He said that Elizabeth uh, had real talent and real drive to succeed, which I believe bears out. That to be true. Mm -hmm. Soon she joined as a regular cast member and frequently played his daughter in skits. Why not? Not weird at all. They ended up getting along pretty well in this period, but Lizzie certainly had aspirations beyond being Robert Montgomery's daughter. She was pretty aggressive in her approach to work as well. Landing roles in Wagon Train, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Studio One, The Twilight Zone, and plenty of others. Like She's an Aries. Yeah. Sparky, sparky fire. With dreams. In 1954, mm-hmm. at the tender age of 21, oh, no. Lizzie met and fell in love with New York socialite Freddie Kamen. I've seen him described as a high roller. and Very much a high roller. Okay. They married. They moved into the same building as Dominic and Lenny Dunn. 
and they were couple friends. And in the best possible way, we warn people a lot about careful who your couple friends are, but this worked out well. And Dominic and Lenny would, of course, end up in California. But first, Lizzie goes to California, 1955. She's ready to head to Hollywood and find her fortune, build her future, do it, establish her own career free of daddy. What's Freddie going to do? Not that. (laughs) He wanted a stay-at-home wife. He wanted a very traditional, normal, mid-century, middle-class. Yeah. So how'd that work? She divorced him and Mm -hmm. moved on. Um, She started landing big roles in movies. She also met and fell in love with actor Gig Young. Mm -hmm. Born November 4th, 1913, a Scorpio. He was 20 years her senior. Older guys and problematic guys. Gig, whose real name was Byron Barr, was a real deal actor who would go on to be nominated for Oscars several times and even win one for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Her father, you know, continuing this relationship that always teetered between hero worship and resentment, was strongly against the marriage. (laughs) Oh, daddy. Yeah, well, making absolutely nothing better, it turns out that dad's concerns were right on the money. Gig was a mean drunk, and he drank a lot. No. The marriage was largely defined by intense strife, and Elizabeth would later reveal that there were incidents of violence, Mm. all of which she hid from everyone in her life, which is what many people do in that situation. That's horrible. I think for a lot of women in that era, their world was their home and the duties attendant to the home. Fortunately for Lizzie, though, she had the outlet of a thriving professional life, So while stuff with Gig may have sucked, she could compartmentalize that and stay focused on her work, which she did. In 1960, at the age of 27, she received her first Emmy nomination for her role in an episode of The Untouchables with Robert Stack. Interesting. It was a big moment for a person who had labored hard to step out of her famous father's shadow. She finally found the courage to end the unhappy second marriage and divorced Gig Young in 1963. So how old is she? And she's been through two husbands. Mm, 30? Yeah, okay. 30-ish. Um, she may have literally dodged a bullet here. Gig would marry two more times. His final marriage began on September 27th, 1978. And three weeks later, he and his wife were discovered dead in their Manhattan apartment, apparently the result of a murder-suicide. Oh, whoa. Gig's alcoholism had eclipsed everything in his life, and his career had been in decline for years because of it. So. Shit. A good one to leave. Good on you, Lizzie. Yep. Lizzie, meanwhile, was auditioning for a part in the crime drama Johnny Cool in <laughs> 1963, which Never is... Never heard of Johnny Cool. Yeah, me either. Which is where she met director and husband number three, William Asher. Asher, 43 at the time, was born August 8th, 1921. Leo, good, good mm-hmm. birthday. 8-8 mm-hmm. is a great birthday to have. Yeah, he and Elizabeth actually had a lot in common in a bit of a mirror of her childhood. He was born in New York City to an actress and a film producer, but the family relocated to Los Angeles when he was young. And then his parents divorced, just like hers. Parents divorced when he was a kid, and he ends up back in New York with his mom. This was kind of a hard life, though. Mom drank heavily. There's Mm. a lot of alcohol problem in this story. Sure. Um, But also, Leo and Aries fire together. There you go. It's great. Burned alive. Yeah, (laughs) so um, he, once the war started... You know, he was he was the right age to join up anyway, but, you know, I think he saw it as a way to get away from his mom. So he joins up and he ends up, he spends four years in Astoria, Queens, doing media with the Army Signal Corps, which okay. is really helpful for 
going to Hollywood and establishing yourself as a successful director. Sure thing. His credits, by the time they met, included 110 episodes of I Love Lucy. Holy cow. He directed, yeah, like, that's something like three quarters close to that. We got all the spider webs happening up in here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he'd worked on the Colgate Comedy Hour, which I think Martin and Lewis got their start on in TV. The Twilight Zone. He also directed the 1962 televised birthday bash for JFK, where (sighs) Marilyn Monroe... Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday. Yep. Wow. So Lizzie landed the part in Johnny Cool, and she and William eloped later in 1963. Oh, well, good on them. And then he just started looking around for projects so that they could keep working together because it was really good the first time. Yeah. It did not take long. William came across a script for a show called The Witch of Westport about <laughs> what was described as a mixed marriage, which in the 19, early 60s. Really? In 64? Yeah. Mixed marriage. Well, it's because it's a magical woman. Who marries like a normie, a muggle? A, a muggle, yeah, mm-hmm. a normie guy. It was social commentary at a distance in a time when America's racial politics were moving front and center, and that, along with the concept of witchcraft in general, made bewitched a controversial concept. William was told that the show would never sell, and that it was DOA in the South and the Midwest. <gasps> witchcraft, mixed marriages, stop It'll talking never... nonsense. This show won't fly. Bewitched launched in September 1964 and was an instant hit. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of many shows that year that embraced a quirkier, more fantasy-based plot and let the country make a departure from the father-knows-best era of wholesome, absolutely non-controversial entertainment. Also launching in September 1964, The Addams Family and The Munsters. Isn't it amazing? It must have been... What a fall. That must We've be. had a lot of fun on the Trashy Adams Family Values we on have. Patreon. I swear, like, seeing this lineup, uh, my first thought was, like, did all of the Hollywood execs just drop acid that year? But actually, they may have, so. Who knows? Who knows? Samantha Stevens' signature nose twitch was actually just a nervous mannerism that Lizzie sometimes had. And William was like, that's good. We can use that. Do that. <laughs> do that. do 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 Bewitched outlasted the other Supernatural shows on the dial, running for eight seasons and cementing Elizabeth Montgomery as a beloved household name. Now, with a happy marriage, a great career, and a growing family, they had three kids, Lizzie was finally experiencing satisfaction in multiple dimensions of her life. Wonderful. Yeah, her second pregnancy was worked into the show, which I think was unusual for the era. They kind of invented a lot of tropes. That are sort of standard sitcom stuff now. It was but a great show. Yeah, when Samantha is pregnant with and gives birth to Tabitha, that, that was a real pregnancy. Um, the birth was staged, I assure you. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so William Asher is like kind of credited with creating the modern sitcom. And so some of these tropes or these things that would become tropes that they innovated on Bewitched... Like, keeping things fresh by introducing, in this case, a cousin, Serena, also played by Lizzie, who serves as, like, the wild side version of Samantha. And Lizzie thoroughly enjoyed the entire Bewitched experience, but she especially enjoyed playing Serena. Oh, for sure. mm -hmm. So the show, for being the lighthearted sitcom that it was on the surface, had real firepower if you scratched that surface even a little bit. As noted... It took real swipes at the suffocating norms around interracial marriage, 
But it also let Agnes Moorhead's Endora character explicitly mock the suburban housewife <laughs> culture that had Team become Endora. so confining to so many women who aspired to different things at the time and yeah. just hit roadblock after roadblock on their way to that. In 1992, Lizzie was asked in an interview if Bewitched could be read as an allegory for closeted homosexuality. She said, Don't think that didn't enter our minds at the time. We talked about it on the set, certainly not in production meetings, that this was about people not being allowed to be what they really are. Mm. If you think about it, Bewitched is about repression in general and all the frustration and trouble it can cause. That's exactly right. In its final season, something not great happened on the set of Bewitched. Oh, no. One of the regular directors of the show was a guy named Richard Michaels, and he and his wife Christina had been friends and professional partners with William and Lizzie for years. And in 1971, Lizzie and Richard fell in love, <laughs> and their affair ended both of their marriages as well as Bewitched itself. Oh. Yep. Yeah, Richard divorced in 72, she and William divorced in 73, and she and Richard would live together for a couple of years, like, during all of this. Oh, my. The heart wants what the heart wants. It's true. Hey, this is trashy divorces. If we don't sprinkle a little dirt on, what's the point? So later in her career, Lizzie became very identified with TV movies. Okay. Starred in a lot of them. And many of them were like kind of society challenging roles. Still, She really just liked that. Controversy. Yeah. Like she was rebellious against her father's norms until the very end of her life, but Anyway, so in 1974, she starred in a TV movie called A Case of Rape. That It's one of the highest rated TV movies of all time. It earned her another Emmy nomination. And, you know, personally, she was very proud because it was a taboo subject at the time. Like, this was a big deal Absolutely. to put out there. 1975, she played Lizzie Borden. And it turns out on her Wikipedia page, like, at some point, someone did some genealogy and realized that she and Lizzie Borden do have a an ancestor in common and so they're technically some kind of cousins this may be the week i pull out my lizzie and emma Mm. borden sisters episode for patreon (laughs) i've been working on it for the longest time it's such a good story cool yeah well this again uh got her an emmy nomination i'd forgotten that she was in that right well she loved it because it was such a departure from samantha stevens Mm -hmm. she was happy to be acknowledged for her talent as a dramatic actress and not just a, a comedic one She got another Primetime Emmy nomination in 78 for The Awakening Land. In 1973, while filming Mrs. Sundance, Lizzie met and fell in love with co-star Robert Foxworth. He would go on to be on Falcon Crest. Yeah, I don't know who that is either. But wait, she's already left her husband for the other guy. The heart wants what the heart wants, Alicia. Oh, my. Yeah, things didn't work out with the other guy. Oh, okay. Well, they were together for two, two and a half years. Sure. Heart wants. Heart wants. Heart gets. This one stuck. Oh, nice. Okay, great. This is the true love. Yeah, but after three divorces, she was extremely reluctant to try her hand at marriage again. (laughs) I wonder why. Eventually, she did relent. The couple would marry in 1993 after about 20 years together. You are kidding. She decided they were probably in it for the long haul. That is amazing. Yeah, her career, you know, continued plugging away. Well into her 50s. Um, also, she got involved in a lot of political issues, did a lot of charity work. She was really active in HIV AIDS campaigns back in the day. Dick Sargent, one of the two actors who played uh, Darren Stevens, her husband right. on Bewitched, the, the swapping of the dicks. Yeah, there was um, a 
little little dick swapping on that but, one. You know, it was never mentioned. It was never addressed in the show. Just one season, there was a different Darren Dick, different around. Dick. Yeah. So Dick Sargent was the second of these. He came out as gay in 1991. I'm sure he had. I, he came out publicly. Sorry, as gay sure. in 1991. So she joined him as the co-grand marshal of the 1992 Gay Pride Parade in L.A. For real? Aw. Yep. I feel like that must have been actually magical. Lizzie Montgomery, you're kind of a classy broad. Yeah, so 1994-95, she's working on some TV movies based on mystery novels by Edna Buchanan. Okay. And starts feeling ill, starts feeling off. So after shooting raps, she checks herself into Cedar sinai where she was diagnosed with inoperable colon cancer. Oh, no. She died eight weeks later. <gasps> mm-hmm. Tragic. Yeah, she was uh, 62 years old, and Dominic Dunn, lifelong bestie, spoke at her funeral. Herbie Hancock played music. Wow. She was something, man. She was... Classy broad. Who yeah. says witches aren't classy Seriously. broads? So just a tremendous career in life. She took a real kill em with kindness path to just blowing up social norms. The allegory of all of it, it it's very she was very smart in how she used her work to challenge things in a way that it was easy to miss but you know once you see it you can't unsee it i love it thank yeah. you for un- for revealing her magic i had no idea yeah she was nominated for 11 emmys across four and a half decades in show business wow and i'm i have to award trash cans okay but these are beautiful perky, friendly trash cans that you are so entertained by, you don't even realize that they're opening your mind to previously unimaginable possibilities. And that is Elizabeth Montgomery. I love it. Witchy women. That was a fun episode. Witchy women make the world better. They really do. Well done, Stacy. Hey, thanks. That was awesome. We have so much more to follow up on on Patreon this week. I think I just adjusted our Patreon lineup. We got some Stevie Nicks. We got some Lizzie Borden. We're going to have a little bit more returning Scottish play. We're going to talk about the tie-in between Hamilton the musical and Take a Break and the Scottish play. Oh, also, you've got Countdown On one week to listen to all of the available episodes taken out from behind the paywall on Patreon. Yep, that's at bit.ly slash trashcandyquarantine. I'm going to be pulling those down. And we'll swap it out with more. Witches Night, October 30th, the night before Halloween. And I'm going to post up our Fun With Done in honor of this week. Our Fun With Done on the murder of Martha Moxley. I'll put that one up first this Friday for everybody. Okay. I think that does it for us. Until then, if you need more trashy divorces, you can go to patreon.com. Listen to the stuff pulled out from the paywall. You can subscribe there. 15% off annual memberships. Big thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, Mm -hmm. as well as you for Mm -hmm. tuning in this week and sharing your time with us. Thank you. We're happy you chose us. We are. We hope you enjoy the stories. Until we see you back next Sunday. Ooh, next Sunday is going to be a lot of fun. We've got big plans for that. We can't wait to see you back then. Until then, keep your hands clean. Wash the hands. Keep your masks on. Definitely. Keep your hearts trashy. Always. Thanks, friends, for tuning in. Can't wait to see you next Sunday. Bye. Bye.
And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.